into the mountaintop, as I had said. Paul's powerful presentation describing how God saves sinners came to a glorious conclusion in chapter 8, and he took us from sinners and condemned creatures to save, sealed, and secure children of God. So those first eight chapters in Romans concludes with a paragraph that almost reaches poetry, really, as it assures the Christian that nothing in all of creation can separate him from God's love. There is nothing that you or I can think of that will break the golden chain of salvation described in chapter 8, verse 29 through 30. In fact, let me read verse 29 to you there. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who is against us? And then in verse 37 it says, We overwhelmingly conquer in Christ Jesus our Lord, who loved us. Love is a prominent word in these texts regarding our security. And the conclusion, of course, is in verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So these are the greatest truths that a human being can know, the unshakable, unbreakable hold of God's love. And knowing this has been a source of power in the church for 20 centuries. It has nurtured us and sustained us and emboldened us. These are the words that make ordinary men and women into martyrs, and missionaries and ministers of God's love in all kinds of different ways and circumstances in life. From all that we can see, Paul has said all that needs saying on the subject of our salvation. And ordinarily, at this point in an epistle of Paul's, he would move into the practical advice section on Christian living, which he does in chapters 12 through 16 in Romans. But there are, we're three chapters away from chapters 12. And there's something left unsaid. There's something that needs clarification. And the issue is one that threatens to really undo all the trust and confidence that we get in Romans chapter 8. There is a reason some have pointed to for rejecting everything that Paul has just said. And that is the question of the Jews. It is a complex point, but let me see if I can say it really simply for you. The fact that Israel as a nation rejected Christ calls into question everything that Paul just said. You say, well, why is that? Because unbelieving Israel calls into question the very gospel. And that's because if salvation is by grace, as Paul has said over and over again, if it is a gift of God and not based on works, but on divine promises, and if God's love is promised to those who are chosen in Christ, then Israel should believe because they were chosen first. That's the whole point. What are God's choice and promise worth if Israel is not in the plan anymore? See? Perhaps the love of God is not so strong as Paul claims. The issue is God's trustworthiness with regard to his promises. So the question is, are the Jews the chosen people or not? 
Also, the rejection of Christ by the Jews is based, according to them, on his failure to bring about the glorious messianic kingdom promised in the Old Testament. And according to many Old Testament prophecies, Israel was to be saved and greatly blessed. We read one of those earlier in the service today, Isaiah chapter 61. But the Old Testament is full of chapters like that, describing the glory of Israel under Messiah's reign. So the Jews argued either Jesus is not the promised Messiah, or if he is, the promises of God to Israel have failed. So here is a substantial argument against Christianity by the Jews who don't believe. And it's a question that believing Jews that are in the church would want to have answers for too, because this could be a source for doubt or fear for them, and Gentiles too, if they think about it. Well, if God promised and chose Israel and Israel is no longer in the picture, then what about his promises to us? Will that change? He says it won't. It's such an important question that it deserves three full chapters to address it properly. So that's the issue we're going to be looking at for weeks here. So keep that all in mind. Did God fail the Jews? You can see a hint of this argument in the first words of Romans chapter 9 verse 6 where Paul says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's, his, that's what he's dealing with. Somebody that would suggest that it, it is as though God's word has failed. And he's saying it's not as though the word of God has failed. That is his argument. God's word has not failed. God's promises have not failed. And he masterfully tells us why. And as all good debaters do, he successfully takes his opponent's argument and turns them right around and proves how they're totally wrong based on their own reasoning. Not that I want you to see this as a debate. It's much more than that. It's a defense of God himself. You know, the whole first eight chapters of Romans are how we can be right with God, how we can be just before God, how we can be vindicated before him in Christ. But now he's actually vindicating God, in a sense, by spelling out exactly God's relationship to the Jews and how all that lays out. So let me say a little more about the church situation that Paul wrote in. All the evidence we have, and it's pretty strong, points to the fact that Romans was written probably in A.D. 57 or 58. Probably in A.D. 57. So that's almost 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and 25 years after the day of Pentecost where the church began, the founding of the church. So at first, the church looked like it was going to be very much a, a fulfillment of Israel's messianic hopes. I mean, the earliest church was Jewish overwhelmingly Jewish. Peter preached one sermon and 3,000 Jews in Acts chapter 2 came to Christ in one day received Christ as their promised Messiah. And in the days and weeks following that, many more were coming to Christ and even the priests in Jerusalem who had been their great opponents began accepting Christ as well. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That's pretty amazing. In fact, you might want to flip back to Acts chapter 3 real quick. There's another early sermon by Peter that's often sort of overlooked. Everybody, we all know about Peter's sermon in Acts 2 because that was such a big event. But this sermon in Acts 3 came upon a situation when Peter had a huge audience that had gathered to marvel over the healing of a man who had been lame from birth. I mean, he was well known as this cripple. Uh, it was really obvious. He'd been known all his life 
and Peter healed him. So this huge crowd gathers and Peter gives this great sermon. I'm going to read this sermon and notice how Peter emphasizes something you might not expect him to say, that Christ's second coming is very near if they repent. And notice how Peter ties the second coming into the promises of the Old Testament. Okay, I'm going to start at verse 11. It says, While there was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. When Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? And why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first... God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So God is plainly reaching out to Israel through Peter's words, really offering them the kingdom essentially now, it sounds like, if they will repent, repent and embrace Christ. And from what we read in Acts chapter 6, it seemed like things were actually heading that way. All these masses of people coming into the church by the thousands then it just suddenly all collapses. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who's one of the leaders of the church, is, is murdered, um, stoned to death, and a flood of persecution from the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem begins to just scatter the Jerusalem church. And one of the leaders of that persecution, that persecution of course, is Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul later, the man who wrote the letter we're reading to the Romans. And although God saves Saul and makes him Paul the Apostle, Judaism becomes Christianity's first and most bitter opponent. Then if you turn to Acts chapter 13, there's a definite shift in mission because Jewish opposition is so intense and Gentile reaction is so positive. Paul says... Um, well, in Acts chapter 13, near the end of the chapter, in verse 44, the whole city assembles to hear the word of God. It says, when the Jews saw the crowds, verse 45, they were filled with jealousy 
and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of God was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. And they shook off the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's what happened. The church began to change and it became heavily Gentile in numbers. It almost flip-flopped an influence, Gentile influence. And has remained so ever since. Now, that's what actually happened, but what does that actually mean? That's what we're dealing with in Romans. Are the promises of God then, calling the Jews the chosen people, a failure? Is being chosen a temporary and really very breakable thing? If so, can the promises to us in chapter 8 fail? So Romans 9 through 11 are meant to answer those questions. So let's start with chapter 9. And it's going to take several weeks to follow Paul's argument, so you have to just kind of stay with me today. We're just going to kind of get into the first part here. The whole discussion begins not with cold logic, but with deep, deep emotion. Paul reveals his own heart, first in regard to his countrymen. Verse 1, he says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he calls both Christ and the Holy Spirit to bear regarding what he's going to say as witnesses that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It would be pretty hard to state this more strongly than he does. Some may have accused Paul of being a bitter renegade against his own people, but that's just not so. He loves his fellow Jews. He is a Jew, and he sees himself as a Jew. And he sees other Jews as blood relatives, if not as yet spiritual brothers. And that they don't believe, the fact that they don't believe in Jesus is not a source of bitterness, but as he says, great sorrow and unceasing grief. Do you recognize that feeling? That ache over lost loved ones that just literally makes your insides actually hurt with grief? You ever feel that? This feeling is so true that Paul is comfortable calling in the witness of the Holy Spirit. He says, I am not lying, and God is a witness that this is how I feel. If it were possible, he says in verse 3, and it's not possible because of Romans chapter 8, but if it were possible, he says, he would trade places with his people and lose his own salvation if they would believe. That's how strongly he feels this. He says, I could wish myself anathema, accursed, separated from God. So he's certainly not anti-Jewish. I've noticed that when people criticize the New Testament as some sort of anti-Jewish work, which is something that people like to say nowadays, they never mention passages like this. They just kind of pretend they're not there. Because the New Testament is not anti-Jewish. It's pro-Jewish. In fact, you know, the New Testament was written 99% by Jewish people. So, I mean, maybe all of it. Men who loved their kinsmen so much that they were willing to give their lives for the salvation of their brethren. Those are the Jews it was written by. And in Paul's case, 
He says he's willing even to give his own soul if it would actually save his brethren. So now at verse 4, he begins to describe his kinsmen in familiar but from a New Testament, point, New Testament point of view, really remarkable terms because he starts talking about the Jews possessing things that we would think of as belonging to the church. So this gets really important. Verse 4, he says, Who are Israelites, his brethren, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. So in verse 4 alone, he describes the Israelites as in possession of six things. And before we look at those things, let me mention an important theological issue that will carry us through these next three chapters. Okay? So just hang on for a second. Near the end of the apostolic era, in A.D. 70, Israel ceased to be a nation in the world. And if you know the history, the Romans, uh, the Jews who rebelled against Rome, the Romans came in with massive armies because you're not allowed to rebel against the Roman Empire. And they crushed the life out of the nation of Israel. I mean, it ceased to be a nation. The Jews, the capital of Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. The temple was burned to the ground in a demonic rage um, that we know from secular history. The Romans literally pulverized Jerusalem and destroyed the country and sent the Jews just scattering to other nations and they were not allowed to be a people anymore. And it was like that for 1,800 years or more since that time. The church, meanwhile quietly grew all over the Roman Empire, at times coming under heavily persecu heavily per heavy persecution, but they kept growing. The church kept growing amongst the Gentiles, with Jews as a part of that, but a small part. But it was a largely Gentile phenomenon. Then in the 4th century, like 260 years later, the church became a legal religion in the Roman Empire, so it actually became accepted, and then it grew even more. And then a few short years after that, it became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and then it just had a lot of theological problems to deal with because the church had not planned on being in power. And when it became in power, it's like, well, what do we do now? And what does this mean? And what is God saying? So in the fourth century, the theologians of the Christian church had to wrestle with something they didn't really have to expect to wrestle with, national sovereignty over a vast area of the earth with, at least in name, Christian emperors. So it became quite an interesting thing. So theologians then, observing the dominance of Christianity in the dismal circumstance of the Jews, who were a scattered people, developed a theology which said that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. The church is the new Israel, or the spiritual Israel. And now, all the promises given to Israel belong to the church. So Israel, as a nation ruled by God, is finished Forever. That was the theology that developed in the Middle Ages based on their experience. And it's still a common theology in many theological systems that exist today. There are many churches that still hold to this theology. The Reformers mostly accepted that long-standing medieval position as well. They just didn't think it through, I don't think, very carefully. And they accepted a medieval position on that. But people who looked more deeply into this matter started to see something different. And while it's true that the church participates in the covenant promises made to Israel, God is not finished with Israel as a nation, as a people. That's the message of Romans 9 through 11. 
He will fulfill his promises to Israel someday, including the very detailed promises he made to Abraham about possessing land from the Nile to the Euphrates that will all be there someday. And the theology I'm describing now is labeled dispensationalism. That's what we call it. Although not everyone who accepts Israel's future likes that label, but that is the common label. People that believe that Israel has a distinct national future are called dispensationalists generally in theology, okay? And that's what we are. If you've never heard that term, that's what our church believes. And dispensationalism really didn't start as a big theology. I mean, obviously, the apostles believed it. And we have evidence, strong evidence, that the very early church believed it. But, like I said, after the 4th century, that stuff started to change because the church's circumstances were so weird and Israel just looked like it had no future. But in the 1800s, people started digging deeper into the prophecy parts of Scripture and trying to bring a literal and historical, grammatical, interpretive tool to the Old and New Testament, not spiritualizing the Old Testament, but taking it for what it said. And they developed this dispensational theology which said there is a future for Israel. Now, this is in the 1800s. It's been 1,800 years almost since Israel even existed. And, there's, and these guys are starting to say, there is going to be a future Israel. And people said, you're nuts. People thought it was crazy, a goofy theology. But constant persecution fired the desire of Jews in the 1800s and early 1900s. And they, there was this group of people called Zionists. But nobody seemed willing to help them. But these Zionist Jews had this passionate desire to have a nation again, interestingly enough. And here's how God does amazing things. God combines Zionism, this zeal amongst certain Jews who had no help and had no hope for ever achieving their goals. He combined that with the success and freedom of Jews in the United States who had material resources. He used Nazi insanity and the Holocaust and communist repression and oppression of Jews in Eastern Europe and all religions that they oppressed and then the United Nations and lo and behold, in 1948, what happens? They create this little tiny state and they say, well, if you can hold it, you can have it. And the Jews, as they can, flee there. And it becomes a nation again. And dispensational theology is amazingly confirmed because they said this was going to happen long before it happened. And suddenly you've got this going on. And then, just to let us know that it's a divine work, the Jews get attacked, in with uh, the Jews who have nothing in Israel get attacked by these vast nations of, with great armies and win. And keep winning. And now they're the power over there that they are today. Still rather a secular nation, but remarkably the only ancient nation in the history of the world to re-emerge with its culture and religion intact. A chance thing? Don't think so. Dispensationalists are vindicated in their predictions and that's when such amazing emphasis on end times events really started to happen in the evangelical church. People didn't do prophecy stuff and nobody wrote prophecy novels before Israel became a nation again. I mean, it's just, it's new. That's all new. There's big emphasis and interest in the church. When I was a brand new Christian, it was, it was, I was, when did I become a Christian? 78, 1978? That was when the prophecy thing was really big and how Lindsay books were the, the best-selling book in the 1970s of all books in the 1970s was The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsay. 
That was the biggest selling book in the 1970s in this country. There's this huge interest. Well, that interest was minimal before all these things started to lay out in history, setting themselves up for a, a possible end of the world according to the Bible, which is the way things are laying out. Well, all that is to say that in the, the belief that the church and national Israel are related but separate entities, we believe that, and that is what dispensationalism is. So we are not so far from these events taking place. And, you know, we're not basing our theology on the events. I think that's really important. Dispensationalism grew before the events happened. The theology was developed out of the Bible. Because the Bible teaches a future for national Israel distinct from the church. That's where we come from. And the fact that things are laying out that way just affirms that. So the Bible is the cake. World events are sort of delicious frosting on the cake. It's, pr it's promised in the Bible whether it happened yet or not. It would still happen in the future because it's going to happen. Well, it is starting to happen. It has happened within our lifetime. So it's exciting to see things happen that are setting up end-time events, but we derive our theology from God's Word always, not from experience. And really the era of the 4th century was looking at conditions and developing a theology based on what had happened. So Romans 9 through 11 are a major feature of dispensational theology. It's a major textual area where we develop this thing. And dispensationalists are different in a lot of some of the little details they get into. But the fundamental difference is that is there a future for national Israel that is distinct from the church? Yes, there is. That's what we believe. So chapter 9, verse 4 is the beginning of Paul's argument that God has not failed in his promises to Israel. Now these six things, he says, belong to the Israelites' people, the Jewish people. One, he says, and this is a very New Testament term, he just used it in chapter 8, the adoption. The idea of sonship for Israel is very clear in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 4, God instructs Moses what to say to Pharaoh when he gets to Egypt. Remember what he says? Exodus 4.22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. You know, before he ever says, Let my people go, he identifies who his people are, and he says, They are my son, my firstborn. So Israel is God's child. Now, we know Paul described the relationship that a Christian has to God using the exact same word in chapter 8, verse 15. Adoption. But we have to wait until chapter 11 to see how sonship and Christians, Jewish sonship and Christian sonship work together. Okay, so you've got to be patient with that. I can't get into all that today. Just hang it into your head somewhere. Put it on a little hook there. Second thing he mentions is the glory. He says the, the, the adoption and the glory. The glory of God's presence among the Israelites in the Old Testament is well known. Of course, there are many such manifestations of it. Most notably in the last few verses of Exodus when God's glory fills the tabernacle so powerfully that people can't even go in there. It's visible, God's glory. But I don't think that's what Paul's emphasizing so much here. Glory also carries a, a future sense. And of course, the golden chain of salvation in verse 30 of chapter 8 of Romans ends with what? Those he justified, these he also glorified. So there's a future glory for believers in the presence of God. This is the glory of the righteous in God's presence. Paul uses the word in just that way in Romans chapter 2, verse 10. He says, glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, a similar idea is found in the prophecy of Simeon, which we talked about in Sunday school this morning in the adult Sunday school class. 
Simeon made a prophecy over the baby Jesus the day they brought him to be circumcised when he was eight days old in the temple. And he says in Luke 2, verse 30, he says, My eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people, Israel. A light of salvation to the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people, Israel. So to Israel belongs glory. Number three, the covenants. He doesn't identify which covenants he's referring to, but all the major covenants in the Bible flow out of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, each of which broadens and um, deepens our understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. That is an unconditional promise of Israel's special place in God's plan, a promise confirmed to Isaac, then confirmed to Jacob, and given a kingly form in the Davidic covenant, where a son of David is promised, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I believe, would reign on the throne of David forever. Also the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31, prophesied in the Old Testament, which we celebrate every time we have the Lord's Supper here in church, which the church participates in, but which was promised to Jews. Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with whom? With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the covenants belong to the Jews. Number four, speaking of the law, he says, that's the fourth thing mentioned, the law of Moses. The vast revelation of God entrusted to Israel is, and that in that law there is the hope that is Christ because all of the law points to Christ. Then he mentions the service, which is worship. Of course, true worship designed by God was given to the Jews. They were the priestly nation. They were a source of true worship. You know, Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, he said, salvation is of the Jews. He told her that. She's a Samaritan. They had a different system of religion, tied to the Old Testament, but different. And he said, hey, the Jews are right. They've got the true worship. Salvation is of the Jews. But then he says, if you remember, he says, pretty soon it's not going to be on your mountain or their mountain. But God, those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. But that's because they had the truth as it was revealed by God in the, in the Old Testament. And of course, that worship pointed to the Messiah too. The sixth thing he says are the promises. Promises of a nation. Promises of blessing. Promises of a future. Promises of forgiveness. Promises of the Spirit. And most of all, the promise of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So all of that is there in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, and he says, essentially, this is what the Jews have. Now the question's going to be, but they reject all that, don't they? And he's going to say, and, but this is for next week and following, no. And you've got to follow him very carefully in what he's going to say. Well, let's do verse 5 right now. Verse 5, Paul mentions the men these promises were made to, the fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he concludes the list with God the Son, of course, Christ. He says, whose, talking about the Israelites, are the fathers, and from whom, from the Israelites and the fathers, is the Christ, according to the flesh, because Jesus was a descendant of Abraham and David and Judah, who is, God over, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Verse 5 is great. 
I want to. I'm tempted to just do a whole sermon on the last few words there because he says that Christ is God. Grammatically, this is a very powerful statement of Christ's deity. Christ is overall God blessed forever. He comes from the Jews as to his human nature, but he is God blessed forever in his divine nature. So what does all that mean? These things, all of them, are given to the nation of Israel, the Messiah included. And what Paul is going to tell us is that there is a future for that nation. God's word has not failed. These are gifts to the people of Israel. And as Paul will say in Romans 11, verse 29, when we get to the end, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, irrevocable. They don't, he doesn't take them back. God is not an Indian giver. He doesn't make promises to people he's not going to keep. God's word fail. His promises fail. Not on your life, Paul says. Then why is Israel unbelieving? That's the argument we'll pick up next week. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being a God who governs history in reality, who makes promises and keeps them, who rules and who calls and who justifies and who glorifies, who became flesh, God over all, blessed forever in human form. Father, we thank you for the truth that Paul's expressing here. We pray that you would help us to lay a hold of these things. Because there are many around us today, especially in Los Angeles, Father, who are Jewish. And have promises that may well apply to them. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.